Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The Where We Live team will continue talking about COVID-19 and its impact on our state. But from time to time, we know it's important to take a break from news focused only on the pandemic. So today, we're rebroadcasting a recent conversation about the environmental and social impacts of fast fashion. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Do you follow the latest fashion trends and weave them into what you wear? There's a price to pay for those shopping habits that extends beyond your wallet. Today, where we live, we explore how the fashion industry churns out the latest trends in an inexpensive way. Fast fashion, as it's called, is employed by apparel companies like H&M and Forever 21. But what are the impacts on the environment and on the garment workers who produce these clothes? You can join us today. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, coming up, we'll be talking about other options uh, for clothing that starts to wear, including, including repairing them. Also, uh, the uh, importance of buying used clothes as well. But joining us first via Zoom is Jasmine Malik-Chua. She's a sustainable fashion journalist who's written for publications like Vox and Fashionista. Jasmine, welcome to our show. Uh, Jasmine, I mentioned the term fast fashion. Uh, so what exactly does that mean? Well, fast fashion really came to prominence around the 80s. Um, Zara, which is one of the world's biggest apparel companies, is widely credited or you know, derided for popularizing the, the model, which is you know, quick response, low cost manufacturing, um, often in the developing countries and clothes that are quickly and cheaply produced with poor social and environmental insight. Mm. So we're talking about clothing that is generally poorly made and they're not made to last, and but they're so cheap that you don't really care um, when you just dispose of them. Mm. Uh, when I think back to uh, growing up and when my mom would take me shopping, you know, there are typically four seasons, uh, especially uh, shopping before school. But when you mentioned fast fashion really taking off uh, starting out in the 80s, you know, how many, how often are clothing companies making new uh, trends and clothes uh, during the year? It's now they don't really have seasons. Mm. They have new products just about every couple of weeks because the idea is to draw new people in all the time. And, you know, an item is only available for a short time. So you either buy it now or or you lose out. Um, I mentioned Zara. Um, Inditex, which is Zara's parent company, made about 1.5 billion items of clothing in 2018. Wow. So about 70% of that was just for Zara. And when we think about inexpensive, so what is the price point? What does that mean when we say inexpensive? You know, it can depends on the garment that you're buying, but it could be a T-shirt that's $5, a dress that is $20, you know, something that doesn't seem exactly commensurate to the amount of labor and materials that goes into it. And then, you know, I'm thinking also when we think about fast fashion, there's so much emphasis now on buying online. How has that contributed uh, to um, how quickly uh, companies can get uh, new clothing out, you know, each week? Well, 
whether um, online is really a huge problem with regarding with regarding to fast fashion is still a little um, questionable because um, e-commerce still only accounts for about 10% of total retail sales. People are still flocking to department stores and, um, you know, and the high street to these places. And I think, you know, the siren song of signs that say sales still draw people to stores where, you know, the foot traffic um, is still vitally important to proliferating the system. Mm. Can we talk more about, you know, how our opinions on clothing has changed, you know, through the decades? You know, there was a time when people may hold on, they had a, a fancy outfit or uh, they had definitely work clothes, but the idea that you wouldn't just throw them out uh, when they started to show wear. Um, fast fashion again, uh, picking up starting in the 80s, but prior to that, you know, just the how people viewed uh, clothing. Yeah, I mean, it used to be that clothing was an investment, right? You just maybe bought a new coat for winter every couple of years or in a good pair of shoes that would really last you. Now, because clothing then was was more expensive compared to the amount of money that we were bringing in, and, and now it's not. It's almost like Kleenex. You know, you buy it, you throw it away, you buy something new. Especially during World War II, there was a whole movement about make making do and mending. And I know you have a home economics expert coming on, but people would would repair their clothes because they couldn't afford to buy new ones all the time. And we've lost that ability to really sew on a button or mend a hem. It's cheaper just to buy something new rather than bother to send it for repairs. Uh, joining me via Zoom today here on Where We Live is Jasmine Malik Chua, a sustainable fashion journalist uh, who's written for publications like Vox and Fashionista. As we talk about the environmental impact, also the social impacts of uh, these constant trends being churned out by clothing companies, again, inexpensive clothing, uh, but people really care about the latest trends. Maybe you're one of them and uh, you want to comment on fast fashion. Find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, you mentioned how uh, having uh, someone on to talk about uh, just basic skills like sewing that uh, maybe a few decades ago more people knew how to do versus today. Uh, That person joining us uh, by phone is Sue Murphy, a family and consumer science teacher at the Morgan School in Clinton, Connecticut. Uh, Sue, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be on the show. So I mentioned you're a family and consumer science teacher. Uh, Some of our listeners might remember having home ec uh, when they were in school. So is that essentially what home ec has evolved into? Yes, it hasn't been called home ec for quite some time. And um, family and consumer sciences encompasses the culinary areas, the textile areas, including interior design, and also child development, human development type topics. So it's it's evolved quite a bit. It's quite a bit. It's there's national standards, there's national organizations, um, and all that. Now, what do you teach specifically at your school? Specifically at this school, it's my second year at the Morgan School. Um, I teach um, culinary classes and I teach child development type classes at this time. I have taught clothing and textile um, classes for many years before this. They just don't happen to have them right now at this school. Mm. And why is that? I know NPR reported uh, a few years ago that the rise of testing and no child left behind in public schools led to a, a quote, dark time for home economics. Uh, Anything that wasn't a test score was scrutinized. And so have you seen that through your years of teaching? Um, Not as much lately. Um, 
I feel like um, the reason that we don't have it at the school that I'm at right now is just because I'm just the one teacher there, and I could I could propose a class like that, and they would probably be fine with it. Um, but there's just only so many classes I can teach a year. Um, I I don't know about the test scores being as much of a concern. I think more of what I've seen in the state of Connecticut anyway is um, the budget cuts um, interfering with especially the middle school programs, where I think is probably the best place to teach the basic skills um, or even younger. Mm. And the pressure in the high schools for students to um, – you know, pack in the AP or college credit classes. I think a lot of that has a lot to do with it. And then um, a lot of us know that in the state of Connecticut, there's a declining enrollment overall of student populations in just about every town. So and you, that is that is also a concern. So you mentioned uh, budget cuts, especially in the middle school years. So effectively, it's at school boards and administrators are thinking about what classes are most essential for students these days. And so when we think about uh, uh, textiles or cooking class, uh, that's not something that there's a real emphasis on. It, it depends on the district. You know, in some districts, there's a real wonderful support in some districts, um, superintendents have really difficult decisions to make because they may have people retiring from the middle school program and they have to make a decision, you know, do they fire people that are, are, are going to be viable teachers the next year? Or do they, they chop a program that they don't really want to chop? Um, but yeah, they still have to make that decision as to like what's, what's most important. Uh, and, and sometimes they're trying to do after school programs or encourage the type of learning to continue somehow, but that's not really what most of us family consumer sciences teachers want to see. So tell me about when you did teach uh, textiles. Uh, what exactly did that entail? Was that a, a student's first experience sewing? Um, when I was at Bacon Academy in Colchester, um, they had a middle school program, so the students did learn some of the basics. So by the time they came to me at the high school, we were getting into it in much bigger ways. It was, to me, it was it's like engineering. And we would produce, we would design, we would even sell products, and, um, and we would send kids off to fashion schools quite often. And so um, and over the years, I've taught like costume-related classes and got involved with the theater kids um, or classes that were more involved with interior design. And um, so there's lots of folks around the state that are, are doing a lot of this still. Mm. And then when we think about uh, when we said that uh, home ec, they haven't used that term uh, for, for many years, but uh, when it was first uh, used uh, several decades ago, there was an emphasis on on uh, girls taking these courses. And so now when we think about um, family and consumer uh, science or even uh, when in your past experience working with students, teaching them how to sew, uh, there's interest from both genders. Absolutely. I don't even see gender as a factor um, in in, for example, culinary classes, we, I sometimes have more boys than I have girls. And in, um, in the clothing classes over the years, the kinds of guys that come in, they're ones that want to add to their skill set for maybe artistic interests, things like that. Um, or they're just really interested in learning more machinery. <laughs> so it, it was, it's not, I don't really see it as, an, as a concern. And um, in the middle school, where they do have the strong programs, all of the students in the in the whole school like kind of rotate through 
some sewing, some cooking, and that sort of thing, as well as the other elective type areas like art. Now, if you remember learning sewing or other uh, skills uh, in your home economics or family and consumer science class, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, we started off uh, the show talking about uh, fast fashion trends, uh, Sue. Um, is this something that you see uh, students uh, thinking about in terms of sustainability, wanting to be able to reuse or repair? I don't think the students at the high school level as are as interested in that. They're very interested in how much plastic they're using, and there's there's some trends with that these days in the straws and the plastic forks and knives, and they're aware of, of a lot of that, and, um, and thanks to a lot of the science teaching that's going on. Um, but overall in the schools, there's not a lot of thought about that, and I think they, and maybe about 10%-ish of the students, especially the ones that want to be more individual or are um, a little bit more artistic or theater-minded, uh, might have, um, you know, might be going to Goodwill, might be going to Salvation Army, might ask me how they would fix something or, you know, get my help with something um, that they want to do. Um, so it's not as... It's not as much of an interest for kids to stay away from fast fashion, at least in in my Mm -hmm. experience. Uh, Now, Sue, before the show, we were talking about how many of us know how to sew a button uh, back on a shirt or pants. (laughs) Uh, For adults who are listening, um, who maybe I'll remember uh, learning uh, how to sew, I mean, what is the best way to learn today? For the real basics like that, and if you're not in a school where you have a program, you know, there's loads of YouTube videos about how to sew on this kind of button or that kind of button, and there's some simple things that can be learned, and I love it when I hear that scout programs are are doing that kind of skill. Um, Honestly, I would love to see some family consumer sciences teachers working in, in fourth and fifth grade classes even. Um, for those real basics. And, and sometimes you just need someone to show you. So, I mean, it's, it's hard. It's hard if they, if they eliminate the classes. Well, thank God for YouTube. And we thank you, Sue Murphy, for joining us today, a family and consumer science teacher at the Morgan School in Clinton, Connecticut. Uh, thanks again, Sue. Thanks for having me. I wanted to go back to my guest, Jasmine Malik Chua, a sustainable fashion journalist. Uh, again, we're talking about uh, fast fashion. We were uh, talking about how um, you know the the skills of sewing and, and other uh, what was traditionally seen as home ec, uh, maybe not much of an emphasis uh, these days, but depends again, as Sue mentioned, on where you live and what your school uh, sees as valuable. But when we think about fast fashion, why is it in the news today? Is it because we're seeing these big retailers like Forever 21 on uh, declaring bankruptcy, and how will that impact uh, future trends? I think that um, I think that it's true that where can you still hear me? I can hear you. I think that um, fast fashion really hit the headlines in 2013 when there was a, a building collapse in Bangladesh. Um, the building was called Rana Plaza. It was an eight-story uh, multi-garment factory facility. And as a result, uh, it killed um, 1,134 garment workers and injured about thousands more, you know, maimed uh, with loss of limb, et cetera, so that, you know, a lot of them aren't able to to work anymore. And so that created uh, a lot of backlash, you know, in the media about the effects of what we're doing um, in these developing countries, you know, putting the the squeeze on factories so that they are forced to work faster at lower prices. And it's kind of settled down a little bit more because people do have short memories. 
But in the aftermath of that disaster, a grassroots movement called Fashion Revolution formed. And every April, they run a campaign with the hashtag, who made my clothes. And I think with the rise of social media, there's been a greater conversation about, you know, where our clothes come from. They don't come from machines, but actual people who touch them and whose lives are affected by, you know, our system of consumption. I'm going to be talking more about that coming up here on Where We Live. Uh, my guest again is Jasmine Malik-Chua, a sustainable fashion journalist. So we're getting a, a few comments on social. Uh, Rob writes, uh, we've had trouble finding certified teachers for our family and consumer science classes here in Wallingford. And then uh, Jasmine, a listener on Facebook, writes, when shopping with my daughter, I taught her how to recognize better quality fabric and construction and not to fall for cheap stuff made of tissue-thin fabric. You might pay a little more for a quality product, but the investment Investment will be worth it. Um, do you think this person uh, is uh, rare these days, where people are thinking more about uh, saving money than quality? The optimist in me is <laughs> hopes that this is the person um, that that we're seeing more of. You know, there's this um, system. Um, some people mentioned that's called cost per wear. You divide the price of the item by the number of times that you wear it. And you know, if you're buying, let's say, a three dollar t-shirt, you wear it just once. The cost per wear is three dollars. But you know, you buy a better quality t-shirt, but you pay more, but you amortize that amount through maybe a, several years, you know, you end up paying less per wear and it's actually more economical for you. We're going to continue our conversation about fast fashion after the break, including uh, we hear a lot about sustainability. It's a buzzword in a climate conscious world. But do you think about that when you're purchasing clothes? We're going to dig into uh, that question more after the break. And we're going to hear about how there's also uh, an emphasis on buying used. We're going to talk to savers after the break as well. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Being environmentally conscious is more important now than ever before. As scientists warn that sea level rise and more extreme conditions like droughts and flooding will worsen as the planet continues to warm. But in your quest to leave less of a carbon footprint, maybe driving less or avoiding plastics, have you thought about how the clothes you wear impact the environment? My guest today is Jasmine Malik-Chua, a sustainable fashion journalist. Uh, she writes for publications like Vox and Fashionista. Uh, in one of her articles for Vox, uh, she writes, the garment industry accounts for 8% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, more than all international airline flights and maritime shipping trips combined. So Jasmine, break it down for us. When we think about uh, that trendy t-shirt that uh, we like to buy, um, how are these habits impacting um, the environment? Right. So everything has a, has a carbon footprint. But beyond that, you know, even a, something as simple as a T-shirt, uh, growing the cotton for that can take about um, 2,700 liters of water, which, if you break it down, is enough for a person to drink for two and a half years. Uh, and if it isn't farmed organically, which means without fertili chemical fertilizers or pesticides, it takes about a third of a pound of pesticides and other um, chemicals just for that one t-shirt. So we've seen, you know, water bodies drained by cotton production. Uh, and of course, you know, when we're talking about synthetic um, 
clothing, which is, you know, your polyester items, acrylic and nylon, all those are made from um, petroleum-based products, which of course emits a lot of carbon, you know, when the petroleum is, is refined from the ground, you know, until the end of the life since plastic isn't biodegradable. Well, we mentioned uh, garment workers uh, briefly earlier. We're going to be talking more about that coming up. But when I think about uh, the, the chemicals, the dyes, the synthetics that are used uh, in uh, these countries that are developing a majority of these clothes, uh, there's also runoff and that impacts water supply, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's a number going around that's, uh, that says about 20% of wastewater in the world um, stems from the fashion industry. So yes, the fashion industry is a very major polluter. In China, there's a saying that you can tell what colors are in, in trend um, by just looking at the, the river because you know, it'll be red one day, it might be blue another. Uh, so it is very shocking that there aren't stricter controls over the environment. And those rivers are then having dead zones uh, as well uh, with less oxygen uh, and impacting, uh, you know, biodiversity uh, in these particular countries. You know, I'm curious. Uh, I actually chuckled when I read one of your articles. Uh, the title is your Greta Thunberg T-shirt contributing uh, to climate change. Uh, so talk a little bit more about that because I, anyway, I alluded to that uh, earlier, this idea that uh, we, we say we want to be more sustainable but not thinking about uh, the long-term uh, impacts of our choices. It's funny because just this morning I was reading about Puma um, coming up with a kids line um, promoting climate action. So you have like sweatshirts that says, you know, climate action now or save our planet and, and so on. And I was just thinking, we really don't need more new products to promote climate action. We need um, brands and retailers and you know other corporations to decarbonize their supply chains in a more systemic way because producing new products that have carbon, chemical, and water footprints is really besides the point. I mean, you're contradicting yourself in a way. I'm curious when we talk about uh, these sustainability concerns uh, arising uh, front and center for, for some companies, you know, is there more um, emphasis on reusing particular materials or recycling something like denim? Yes, there are, you know, a number of, of great initiatives. There are smaller brands and even bigger ones um, like H&M that are looking into to recycling because uh, waste is a huge issue. I think the number from the, the EPA says that the average American throws out uh, 81 pounds of textiles a, a year, which is, is quite incredible. A large majority of this is recyclable, and especially cotton textiles but it ends up in the trash or incinerated. So we do need a way to recapture this resource. It's what um, the industry calls a circular economy, mm -hmm. where instead of uh, materials going to the trash, we're reclaiming them and turning them into new things and more useful things so that they don't wind up in the environment. You can join our conversation today as we talk about the impact of fast fashion. Again, uh, uh, this uh, low-quality, inexpensive way that uh, companies are producing clothing and accessories, uh, uh, so many trends these days. But maybe you're not doing that. Maybe you're thinking about ways to be more sustainable. Bill on Facebook writes, I'm proud to buy exclusively from Savers and Goodwill. We're going to be talking to Savers uh, coming up. Uh, Marcus from Enfield is calling. Uh, what's your question or comment? So I just wanted to uh, comment on how um, it is a little bit tougher to spend uh, more money on higher quality 
um, for kids when they grow so fast. Uh, so one thing that my wife and I do is we, we frequent uh, the Once Upon a Child, which is, you know, they, they, you sell your clothes there, and it's basically like hand-me-down clothes. Well, perfect. I actually, I know of that chain uh, again. And then when you have uh, children, so you've been uh, buying from this consignment store, but when they were younger, did you find that you were lending uh, clothes uh, as your children uh, aged out of them to to family and friends? Um, yes, we do that. And then we have a few friends that, you know, they have some kids that are closer in age. Our 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 kids are seven years apart, so it was kind of hard for the hand-me-downs. Um, but yes, you know, it's... Uh, we live on a budget, so it's, you know, everywhere we can save money, we try. Well, good points that you raise, Marcus. Again, um, my guest today uh, via Zoom is Jasmine Malik-Chua, a sustainable fashion journalist. Uh, Marquise brought up uh, the importance of also uh, looking at consignment or used clothes, especially when you have children. So I wanted to bring into the conversation Phil Garrett, store manager at Savers in Manchester, Connecticut. Phil, welcome to our show. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about Savers for those of us who who haven't been to uh, a Savers store in Connecticut. Well, I mean, Savers is um, a thrift store, just like a uh, a Goodwill, but just a little bit different. So um, the difference is we're a for-profit with a non-profit partner. So um, our non-profit partner in, uh, at the Savers stores in Connecticut, at least, is uh, the local chapter of Big Brothers Big Sisters. So um, So that's kind of where we're getting our goods from. So we purchase our goods from them, and then we can sell them in our store as a for-profit company. So tell me, uh, who are your typical customers? We heard from Marquis uh, in Enfield. Uh, he has a family, and he mentions, you know, kids grow so fast, so trying to buy high-quality new clothes, it's not really practical, especially if you're on a budget. So tell us about the people that come to Savers. Well, that's that's the thing that's, uh, that's you know, difficult to gauge. We have customers that are any age bracket uh, that you can think of. And, you know, at this point, you know, through the education that we have with our, our customers and our, our society is that thrifting is, is more of a, a mindset. It's not, it's not just, you know, because of you're this age, you have to do this, or um, it's really anyone that's uh, conscious, you know, environmentally or conscious economically. If you, if you have to think about your budget, like the caller that just was speaking have to think about, um, or if you just really want to make sure that we are reusing um, things and keeping those items out of the landfill, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to impact and be thoughtful for everybody that's, that's coming into our store or wants to even just come check us out. You know, Jasmine mentioned earlier uh, the amount of, of clothing that's disposed of. And I'm just curious when people are um, donating clothes or when Savers uh, look, you know, goes through uh, the items that you get. I mean, can you, can you walk us through how you do that? How much of that ends up back on the store floor versus um, you sending it off to be recycled? Yeah. So, I mean, I have some averages, which, you know, is going to be different from day to day. But you know, when again, when, when people are donating to uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters, and then we kind of purchase from them, I want to make that clear. But, uh, you know, what we do is sort through it. About half of it is going to get to our sales floor. Um, that's, you know, what do we do with the other half? Well, what's, what's good about that is any, about 95% of what we touch in our stores are going to be, those items are going to be reused somewhere either locally, uh, like I said, on our sales floor, or domestically or internationally. So 95% of what people are, are donating to, to stores these days are, are, is going to be reused in, in some way. And for the stuff that you don't um, uh, are able to reuse, where does it go? 
So, uh, again, so we have uh, international buyers, which will, um, you know, we can purchase to them, and they will, again, use it um, kind of like what we do. So uh, the same sort of idea. So they're going to be looking at it and using it in the same way that, that we do. So they'll sort through it just like we do, and they'll use what they want to in a certain way. But, uh, but it's the same, the same sort of thing. So worldwide, it, this stuff is going. It's not just, it's not just here at Savers. It's going uh, in the, around the entire world to different, uh, different buyers. Mm. Uh, Jasmine Malik Chua, we're hearing again from a manager uh, of Savers, which is a thrift store chain uh, here in Connecticut and also, I believe, in other places. So when we think about trends, uh, again, concerns for sustainability, uh, is there uh, more interest now in buying uh, buying used? Um Yes, I think so. Um, there has been um, reports that you know the number, the percentages, especially among millennials and Generation Z, the younger ones, are more interested in buying used um, because you know it's it's more affordable for them. You know they don't have a whole lot of money, especially Generation Z. It's a little trendier because they're more uh, concerned about the environmental effects on clothing. So. There is a movement, I think, towards uh, resale, which is very hopeful. Uh, Heather's calling from Cheshire. Heather, go ahead. Oh, hi. Um, I just wanted to say I made a pledge to myself about three years ago to buy only um, used clothing, and I just to see if I could do it. And it went really, really well, and I was really pleased with it. And I've sort of passed that on to my two teenage daughters, uh, making it part of their lifestyle, their habit, you know, we don't need to go to the mall to buy clothes. We can go to lots of different places. And it's just, it's become a lot of fun. And, you know, you save money, but, you know, you're doing something positive for the planet. So just putting that in their heads at a young age, I think is really important. Uh, Thank you for uh, your call. Also, uh, Tommy's calling it from Torrington. Tommy, you're on where we live. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I uh, just wanted to mention, I, uh, I, I think shopping local can also help the situation immensely as well. Uh, I'm a blue-collar guy. I'm a truck driver. I get dirty, and I go through pair, uh, pairs of pants uh, very often. And I actually spent some extra money, bought some pairs of pants from uh, Hartford Denim Company, which is located right in Hartford, and they're the most durable pants I've ever owned. They do free repairs, and it's been, uh, it, it's been <laughs> such a huge uh, uh, it's just been so great to, to find such quality clothing so local. Well, thank you for that point. Uh, uh, before um, uh, we go back to uh, Phil Garrett from Savers, uh, Jasmine Malik Chua, um, we think about um, some of the other companies out there who you know try to put out that lifetime guarantee. Or if you uh, purchase our item and it's not necessarily inexpensive, if something goes wrong, you can you can return it to us and we'll give you a new pair. Is that something or a new item? Is that something that's uh, growing in interest? Yes, um, you know, companies like Patagonia are, are, are doing um, workshops where, where they'll repair for you. I think Patagonia has a trailer, trailer that goes around the U.S. Um, to, you know, um, reach out to consumers to do repairs on the spot. And the North Face also has, I believe, lifetime re- repairs. And that is definitely um, of interest to brands. It's actually, uh, it, it may seem not very, make not economic sense for them, but it's a way for them to engage with their consumers and develop a longer term relationship and create even more touch points. And I think if you go back to a a retailer and you know that they'll mend and take care of your clothes, you're more likely to spend your money there as well. 
Uh, Phil Garrett, uh, we were hearing um, from people who, who do like to buy used that uh, go to consignment or thrift stores. But is there also uh, perceptions about thrift uh, companies, thrift stores, where um, maybe they're, they're getting something cheaply, but, you know, you know, there's a perception that that's not uh, clean. So I'm just curious, like, you know, what your Savers does uh, to dispel that kind of perception. Well, you know, if, again, thrifting has that uh, connotation of just walk into a dirty store and it's not anything you want to be in, but uh, you can afford the clothes. But it's not, it's not like that. And I can say to any, uh, any people that have been into a Savers, our stores are a lot different than that. So it, we're, we're, clean. We pride ourselves on being clean, well-organized, uh, very bright, you know, very, very open to let you see the garments that you're looking at. So if you see something on the shelf that you're very interested in, it's bright enough to actually see if there's a, a small little stain on it or, or something that's, that's going on with it. So we want to make sure that, you know, we're being very transparent with what we have on our shelves. We started the show talking about fast fashion again, uh, the amount of uh, clothing that's out there now because of these companies that are producing so much. So would you say a lot of the stuff you're getting are, is fast fashion? Are you able to reuse this? Uh, I, I can't say it's any more than anything else. We have some, some great quality items that come in as well as a, a mixture of you know, lower quality items that come in. But you know, that, that's what we do here best is, is make that distinction of what what is higher quality versus lower quality and and you know as a as a thrift store there's going to be some variance in prices but that's that's kind of what we're we're looking at and that's what we really want to focus on uh, Laura's calling from Stratford Laura go ahead Hi I just want to comment that on top of the environmental concerns the main reason that I love thrift shopping is for the pure fashion there's such an amazing selection I'm wearing a pair of leather boots that I got at Savers right now they cost me $6, and they're fabulous. So if I go into a store like that, you know, I can get stuff that I'm looking for, stuff that I wasn't expecting to find, and then walk out with a handful of records while I'm at it for way less than I would spend at the mall. Well, thank you, Laura. I'm glad you found those boots. Also, uh, May, uh, Margie's calling from Simsbury. Margie, you're on the show. Hi. I just had a quick question um, about the teaching children or young people to sew. Um, I teach a little bit of sewing, and I notice just a tiny bit of it will inform the shopping. I think kids and all ages are going to thrift shops because they do recognize quality. And as soon as you learn a little bit, you go into a thrift shop and you say, wow, this is really well made. I'm going to buy this. Well, thank you, uh, Margie, uh, for calling in to uh, Where We Live. Wanted to fit uh, one more caller in, uh, Lou from New Haven. Lou, you're on the show. Lou, can you hear me? Thank you for taking my call. Yes, yes, I'm here. Uh, so thank you for taking my call. This is Lou uh, calling uh, from Citizens Campaign for the Environment. So one of the things that we haven't talked about today is the issue of plastic microfibers. Many of these garments are actually made from recycled plastics, um, which is great um, for the fact that we're recycling all that plastic. But um, many of these things from fleeces to different kind of synthetic garments will release thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of these plastic microfibers during the wash. And so this is something that CCE was part of a task force that the legislature put together uh, about two years ago to look at the issue of plastic uh, uh, microfibers, synthetic microfibers. And uh, part of what we're doing now is focusing on educating the public about this issue. So 
DEEP just finalized their final report. We expect that to be going up on their website within uh, hopefully a few days. And uh, we just wanted to put that out there as something that perhaps where we live might want to come take another look at here uh, when, when you're ready. All right, Lou. Well, thank you for letting us know. I'll let uh, Jasmine Malik uh, Chua have uh, uh, the last word again when we're talking about the environmental impacts of all this clothing and accessories that's produced. Uh, again, micro plastic microfibers also um, being something that people are worried about. Yeah, yeah. Microplastics are you know, an incredibly um, uh, increasing uh, problem with the with oceans, they're loosely defined as, you know, really tiny fragments of plastic that are smaller than one fifth of an inch. And because they're so small, um, they usually slip past wastewater filters in sewage plants and get into our waterways that way when we launder polyester, acrylic, or, or nylon uh, garments. And so I think the United Nations Environmental Program says there are about 51 trillion microplastic particles in the ocean. A lot of it comes from mismanaged plastic waste. So, you know, broken down plastic bags, uh, tire pieces, etc. But about a third comes from synthetic textiles. And it's a problem because, you know, researchers have found microplastics in drinking water, sea salt, um, you know, the Arctic ice, the stomachs of, a, of, you know, turtles, fish, whales, seabirds, and um, recently in human poop. So it's definitely a problem. I think one scientist said that, you know, we consume about a credit card size worth of, of plastics every month, you know, just by eating seafood and, and drinking water and things like that. So it's definitely a concern. Oh, I want first want to uh, thank uh, Phil Garrett again, store manager at Savers in Manchester, Connecticut, for letting us know a little bit about uh, how uh, Savers operates. Sounds like there's a lot of fans of Savers out there, including our tech producer, Kion Wolf. Phil, thanks for joining us today here on Where We Live. <laughs> thanks for having me. Again, uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With me, Jasmine Malik-Chua, a sustainable fashion journalist. Uh, we started the hour talking about fast fashion. Uh, we're learning about the environmental concerns of all this uh, stuff that's being produced. Uh, but again, there are people behind uh, the clothing that you and I wear. We're going to hear more about the garment workers and how the fashion industry is not meeting their needs. You can join us too. find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Now, today we've been talking about fast fashion, the rapid production of low-quality, inexpensive clothes that consumers demand today and how it has a big impact on the environment. But how do the business practices of large apparel companies affect the people making the clothes? Uh, with me via Zoom is Jasmine Malik-Chua, a sustainable fashion journalist. Uh, so let's talk about on the production side, side how companies are able uh, to make these clothes so quickly and who's making them, Jasmine. Yeah, so a lot of um, these clothes are outsourced to developing countries. Um, f first, you know, in the eighties to in the late eighties to China, but then when China got more expensive, you know, it started trickling, trickling down to um, Southeast Asia uh, and South Asia, so Bangladesh, uh, India, Cambodia, and Vietnam, where they may not have as as stringent uh, labor and environmental laws, so brands are able to push for faster turnarounds and demanding lower prices. But what happens is that 
because of the squeeze on margins, um, factories are are made to to push wages down even further. And the trickle down effect means that workers um, bear the brunt of the impact and they're surviving basically on starvation wages. Mm. Uh, we mentioned uh, Bangladesh earlier, again, uh, the place where this uh, factory collapse happened. Can you give us an idea of how much a typical garment worker would be making in Bangladesh? Are they are typically women? About 58% of garment workers um, in Bangladesh are, are women. Um, they're making no, uh, many of them aren't even meeting the minimum uh, wage, let alone a living wage, because those are completely different things. Um, the minimum wage is what the government um, puts out, but a living wage is what you would actually need to, you know, um, rent or live in a home, you know, provide food for yourself and your family, maybe educate and, and clothe your children. And people are, are so stretched out that they can't even do all, all of that. And so how uh, do how have governments responded in these uh, particular countries uh, uh, because there's now more attention now on these ethical concerns? I would think that governments don't want to push away these brands that are in other countries uh, employing some of these workers. And if they were to try to raise uh, the wages for some of them, wouldn't these companies find another place to do their business? That is a great fear. So you have the factory uh, Owners, owner associations lobbying the governments to keep the minimum wage da- uh, the same or, or even lower. Um, but we've also seen um, worker protests from Bangladesh last year in January, which, you know, um, millions of people took to the streets to demand higher wages. Uh, and recently in Cambodia as well, you know, workers are not sitting down and just accepting their lot in life. They want a better life for themselves and their children. And so that is something that governments will have to deal with because you can't have product without workers. And what about the role of the middlemen? Uh, Can these uh, brands claim they don't know what's going on uh, when it comes to the, the conditions and the pay that these workers are getting? There's a lot of, you know, um, of brands, you know, making excuses because they most of them uh, don't own the factories that they, they produce in. And so they're just a client. And, you know, the smaller the brand is, the more clients a factory might have. And so a, a smaller voice uh, that the brand might have. And so there's a lot of plausible deniability. And because, as I mentioned earlier, there are so few social controls in these developing countries, factories often subcontract to other factories which are not even on you know, the regula- regulatory radar. And those subcontractors might even subcontract to even a, a shed somewhere where you know, children might be making the clothes. And because the supply chains are so convoluted and so opaque, a brand can say, well, we didn't know that was happen- this was happening and then just move on without repercussions. Uh, and so what we really need is a lot of transparency from what's happening in this industry. Hmm. I understand H&M, which is the second largest apparel company in the world, pledged a a living wage uh, for workers in 2013. But was that just just rhetoric? Well, we've seen a lot of um, mentions of them about developing a fair wage system and and so on, but we're not seeing a lot of concrete numbers you know, whether they're actually paying a living wage. Again, you know, because H&M, despite the, their size, they do not own their factories. And so 
they they say that they do have to work with the government. They do have to work with factory owners. We're not seeing a lot of concrete action, which is why labor rights um, organizers are are feeling a little frustrated at them right now. It's it's really a wait and see kind of situation. Uh, we've been talking about again the environmental, the social impact of a fast fashion. So, you know, what are some solutions for listeners who maybe th- maybe rethinking some of the choices they make when, when they purchase items? Is there too much uh, onus put on consumers? Should uh, government uh, get more involved in this? Yeah, I think you know there is a lot of um, stress on personal guilt which I am a firm believer that, you know, personal decisions do do matter. And consumers definitely do have a voice when, you know, they talk to their brands and say, you know, hey, we, we do want more transparency. We do know what factories you're sourcing from and what you're paying your workers. So I think brands should start listening to their customers because if they don't, they're going to lose them. But brands also have a role in, you know, changing their sourcing practices, not putting the squeeze on these factories, I, you know, the Center for Global Workers' Rights at Penn State University recently found that from 1994 to 2017, the real dollar price paid by American buyers to Indian garment factories declined by 63%. So brands definitely have a role to play in keeping wages down for these factories. And, you know, governments also can um, make decisions, can can uh, create situations where brands are more incentivized to raise wages or to develop um, take-back systems for their clothing so it doesn't end up in the landfill. There are all kinds of things that they can definitely do. Hmm. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, uh, consumers can also think about uh, uh, shopping with smaller companies that are are, uh, putting their commitments out there, uh, that uh, they're looking uh, at how much uh, the workers are paid. Um, This is also something that the British Parliament did. They they tried to uh, put in some uh, reform measures. That's right. Um, the Environmental Audit Committee, which was a, a cross-party committee uh, in the British Parliament, did a year-long study about the fast fashion industry, focusing on, on the UK, of course. And uh, last year, they came up with a, a list of recommendations, including a, a one-penny charge per garment that would fund a national clothing recycling scheme. It also suggested um banning incinerating or landfilling unsold sock, which is something that happens as well with more premium brands because they don't want to um, lower the value of their clothes. Uh, It proposed, I believe, a virgin plastic tax on textile products containing less than 50% recycled plastic, as well as, you know, environmental targets for apparel companies. But but sadly, these were all rebuffed by the UK government once they they looked at them, which um, is unfortunate. Uh, they thought it would it make economic sense? Yes, and they said that they had their own policies in place, but their policies were nowhere uh, nearly as ambitious as what the EAC suggested. Mm. Well, I want to thank Jasmine Malik Chua for joining us, a sustainable fashion journalist. Have you given us a lot to think about the next time we're uh, shopping uh, for clothing? Uh, Jasmine, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Thanks to Robin Doyen Aiken on our phones. You can learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.